0: Bibles open them up to Matthew chapter 7. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was trying to race my son and finish the Sermon on the Mount before he you know, comes into the world. Uh, I'm doing a poor, poor job of that because today we're going to do one verse. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12. Jesus says this, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. What is the most chaotic situation you've ever dealt with? What's the most chaotic situation you've ever been through? I'm not sure this qualifies as most for me, but it's definitely one of the top. Um, freshman year, I had just finished my freshman year of college, and I was interning between my freshman and sophomore year for my first time ever at a church. And as an intern, it was my job essentially to do anything the pastor just really didn't want to do. So we had a pastor, we had uh, one associate pastor, and then we had me as as an intern. And so my job description ranged anywhere from watering flowers to preaching on a couple Sundays. Like it was that. But one of the big things I was supposed to do is go on youth camp with the youth and go on children's camp with the children.
1: So that particular year, we only took
0: four guys, about third to sixth grade, to, to this children's camp. But we got there, me and the associate pastor, and on the second night, he had a family emergency and had to go home. So there I am, 19 years old, hanging out with four third through sixth grade boys in this cabin, just just us. Which already was a horrible idea. No one should have let me do that. It was a dumb decision by that church, and I'm just calling them out publicly for it. No. So anyways... I can handle this. We'll do it. Let's, let's make work. So, uh, I get ready. I have my alarm set the next morning so I can get up before they do and get them to go get showers because everyone who knows trying to get third to sixth grade boys to take showers is like a two hour process. So we're practicing all of this. So I get up early, early, early in the morning and I'm walking, I'm checking and one of the kids is not in his bed. He is, he is gone just nowhere to be found. So I put on my shoes and I take off running through this camp Trying to find where on earth this kid is because he's got parents somewhere else and it's my responsibility to be taking care of him on their behalf and on behalf of the church. And that was, I think, one of the most chaotic situations I've, I've ever been in. So finally, I found him and he was in a little rowboat off in the lake with a fishing line. I'm like, buddy, what are you doing? He's like, I'm fishing. I can see that. Why? He goes, well, they're not biting anything. He's like, this line doesn't even have a hook on it. You're just out in the middle of water and you didn't even tell me. I was like, get back in here right now. And so we're walking back to the cab and I finally get him back to shore. And, you know, he's giving, are you mad at me? I'm like, I'm not happy right now, buddy. I'm a little concerned. And so we get back. And we have a little debriefing moment with the third and sixth graders. And you who've been in that situation you have to, or situations like it, you know everything in you wants to react to that. And what's your reaction to subside the chaos? It's to set up more rules, right? we got to give rules to prevent this from happening again. But that in itself is a little bit complicated because you may or may not know this, but the more rules and boundaries you set in place, it actually becomes harder to follow them all. Uh, and the system becomes more likely to regress than grow because of all the attention that's placed on what not to do and not what to do. So I thought uh, I found this article is from Netflix on their job culture. And I thought this was really interesting because one of the five core values on fi- number five is no rules. That's Netflix's core values. And this is what they say about it. In some organizations, there's an unhealthy emphasis on process and not much freedom. These organizations didn't start out that way, but every time a kid left their bed and went fishing, every time something went wrong, the Python of process squeezed harder. Specifically, many organizations have freedom and responsibility when they're small and everyone knows each other. As they grow, however, their business gets more complex, and sometimes the level of passion and talent goes down. As the informal, smooth-running organization starts to break down, pockets of chaos emerge. At this point, the general outcry is to add processes and reduce the chaos. And as rules and procedures proliferate, more value is placed on following the rules. You tracking with me here? This is, I know it's like legalese, but keep following with me. The system is then dummy proofed and creative thinkers are told to stop questioning the status quo. This kind of organization may very, uh, be very specialized and well adapted to its business model. However, over 10 to 100 years, the business model inevitably has to change and most of these companies are unable to adapt. So there seems to be this spectrum that we all live on uh, where, where no rules is just absolute chaos and nothing really ever gets accomplished. But you overload the system with too many rules and no one can do anything. It's, it's overload and they're trapped by all of these different boundaries. So I finally get the kid back to his room. and I'm, I'm, about, I'm just about to start listing off the rules. All right, guys, we got all of these rules to fix this problem. Look, number one, don't go fishing. Well, wait a minute. The camp director said we're allowed to fish while we're here. Okay, look, don't go fishing in the morning. What about free time after breakfast in the morning? Can we go fishing then? Okay, yes. Don't go fishing before breakfast in the morning. Go eat breakfast. What if I don't like the breakfast they're serving? Can I go fish then? No. And so we just went down this. And again, you're talking with third to sixth graders, so you probably done that finally i just say look here's the rule before you go let me know wherever it is you're going if you're going to the shower if you're going to eat breakfast wherever it is you're going if i am not going with you you tell me that's the rule and no one went fishing again any mornings so it was it was fine see there's something to be said about conveying rules as simply and concisely as possible And this was the very case going on by the day of Jesus, because in the day of Jesus, they had a very set law. They called it the Torah. It was the first five books of the Bible. We still read those very same first five books of the Bible. But the Torah notoriously has 613 different laws. And those 613 different laws uh, range anywhere from the Ten Commandments to laws like don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Like those are all part of this list of 613 and so the question was how do you take all of these laws and condense them down to a simple kind of rule of life how how to live there were a lot of different people talking about this. In fact, there's a classic story in the Jewish Talmud. Um, this the extra-biblical kind of Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament. So it tells this story about Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. I've actually quoted from them before in this sermon series. So, uh, but here's, here's their story. Two key leaders in Judaism about 50 years before Jesus and his ministry began. It says this. There was another incident involving one Gentile who came before Shammai and said to Shammai, convert me on one condition that you can teach me the entire torah while i'm standing on one foot now that sounds silly but that's what he means is do it and teach me quickly can can, die, can make it short and simple that i can understand so shammai responded by pushing him away with the builder's cubit in his hand for this was a common measuring stick and shammai was a builder by trade Now, you're not maybe picking up on the nuances, but the way this story probably reads is something more along the lines of a guy walks up. He goes to Rabbi Shammai and goes, tell me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. And Rabbi Shammai hits him with a stick. That's that's the story. So then this guy goes to Rabbi Hillel, the same Gentile came before Hillel and Hillel converted him because he said to him, that which is hateful to you. Do not do to another. That is the entire Torah. The rest is interpretation. Go study. That's 50 years before Jesus. So what's happening here? Is Jesus just ripping off of what Hillel has already said? Is he plagiarizing this other rabbi? What's, What's going on? And there's a lot more to be said about that. For now, I just want you to understand, Jesus tackles this very same question. How do you take the 613 commands of the Torah and convey them as concisely and simply as possible. It actually happens twice in the book of Matthew. It happens once towards the end in Matthew 22, where a guy comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus gives the Shema, Love the Lord your God. That's the, the Jewish idea of Deuteronomy. Hear o, Lord, uh, hear, o Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Uh, and then... The next one, and the greatest and most important command, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets and law depend on these two commands. So that's that's one. There's another one right here in Matthew chapter 7. But let's let's break this one down because this is what we're really studying today and get through a little bit of technical stuff. And we'll see if we can get to the other side of what does this rule mean and how is it summarizing all 613 of the commands in the Torah. So first and foremost, when we read this idea, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. You need to understand that this was originally written in Greek. Matthew is not writing in English. He writes in Greek. And Greek is notoriously difficult to translate into English in some ways, especially in the way of what we would call word order. So in English, I know you guys didn't sign up for a grammar lesson, but you're getting one anyways this morning. In English, we do every sentence the same. Subject, verb, predicate. Subject, verb, predicate. If you don't talk like that, Yoda like you sound. That's, it doesn't work. So that's not the case in Greek. Greek is an inflected language, meaning you can put whatever part of the sentence in whatever order in the sentence you want. It's just determined by the letter ending on each word, whether it's the subject, the verb, the predicate, things like that. And so getting this passage in a particular order is somewhat difficult. In fact, if you go read multiple translations, you'll come out with stuff like the Christian standard, what I read for. Therefore, whatever you desire others to do, do also the same for them. The ESV translates, so whatever you wish that others would do for, it, for you, do also to them. I like the message, sincerely. Um, it's a little bit out there, but I do like it. Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and go do it for them. Still, in, in all of that, most of us, if you have memorized what we call the golden rule, you probably memorize it as something along the lines of do unto others. As you would have them do unto you. At least that's the way I had it internalized. And that translation most literally lines up with the NIV translation that just says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. All that to say, I'm going to take the NIV, break that version down for the sake of talking through this. So let's start with that first word, so in everything, or so. It's the Greek word sometimes translated, therefore. It's a callback word that's supposed to point you back to something else that's happened. I let my kid eat seven chocolate bars, so he threw up on the floor. Therefore, he th- the therefore saying the reason I just said is why this event happened. So the question is, what is Jesus referencing here? What is the so the sign? pointing back to. And there's a little bit of debate behind this, and I think there's a mixture of both at play. Some will say that this is clearly attached to the previous passage, uh, the ask, seek, knock passage. And the idea is your ability to treat others correctly is closely tied with knowing how the Father treats you. So the better you know the love of the Father, the better you can interact in love in humanity. So the translation point would go something along the lines of. In light of how God loves you and treats you, go treat others in the way you would want to be treated. And all that's fair, and I think there's a right assumption, but there's a bigger clue at at play in this, and it's the very end of verse 12, when Jesus says, for this is the law and prophets. Now, if you'll recall, back in chapter 5, this actually isn't the first time Jesus has used this phrase. He uses it again in chapter 5, verse 17, when he mentions that he does not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill the law and prophets. If you start tracking along with his way of thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to go on and march through six particular Torah commands. So he's going to, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who's angry in his heart has already committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, so he's just going to keep marching through these Torah commands uh, and then he's going to deal with some particular spiritual disciplines, things like giving and fasting and praying. So, so what Jesus is talking about in this idea, what theologians will say, is it's not just a tag, therefore, because God loved you, ask, pray, seek that passage. But it's actually a summary statement to everything Jesus has been teaching. There's a theologian and author, his name Scott McKnight, who wrote a lot of really good books. But he calls these the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. That you have, if you were to break it down in order, you have an introduction, and that's the Beatitudes. You have this kind of call that's you are the salt and light. And then you have your first bookend. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And he's going to go and explain about all of that. Central content, interpreting the law and prophets. And then he closes with, this is what it all means. This is the law and prophets. And then he gives an outro. We'll spend like three weeks on that next. So, but here's the point. I think both interpretations have some validity to them. Uh, but in all, this is Jesus's way of taking an overwhelming number of rules and repackaging them into a short and memorable rule. And I think a lot to say of it is just this: it works. Don't feel bad if you don't. But how many of you of you in here had the uh, the Golden Rule memorized even before you came in this morning? I'd say, quite a few of you. We've kind of internalized it even into our own hearts. Do unto others what you would want them to do unto you. Jesus' rule becomes this little thing that plugs into our brain and kind of sticks around there. Now, there's more at play in the Greek, so let's do that. So, whatever you want others to do for you, or in everything what others do to you. So it's every situation to all people. And I, I can prove that because the word others here, we've got to do a little bit more Greek, but the word others is the Greek word anthropoi. That's where we get our word anthropology from. Anthropos, the study of humanity. Um, and that's not the typical word that usually gets translated other. There's another Greek word that gets translated other, and it's the Greek word allos. And that one, when Matthew uses it, and he uses it over and over again in this passage, Uh, is another of the same likeness. So in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, if someone hits you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek, alas, one of the same kind. But here Jesus does not use that word, or Matthew does not use that word, one of the same kind, because that way the interpretation would go something along the lines of, do unto other people like you what you would want them to do unto you. But instead Jesus uses this word, anthropoi, Humanity. The point is, this rule is not limited to the convenience of people you like or people that like you. In fact, it's much the opposite. In everything, treat everybody the way you would want to be treated all humanity familiar or stranger friend or foe same gender or different gender same color skin different color skin same religion different religion same political affiliation different political affiliation same economic background different economic background if you choose to live in the way of jesus Everything you do should be a preemptive attempt at loving others and treating them well, no matter who they are. Why? Because that's how Jesus loves us. This is what Jesus is getting us to. He's getting us to a point that we could start to learn to love and live like Jesus loves and lives. So we could boil it all down. We might say something like this. Intentionally living like Jesus means loving like Jesus. You cannot separate loving Jesus from loving like Jesus. There are two sides of the same coin. I think one of the pitfalls in our modern, hyper-individualized Christianity is how much we've verticalized our religion. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we begin conveying this idea that the gospel is all about you and your relationship to God and where you spend eternity when you die. And all that's true. That's a big part of the gospel, But the other side of that coin is not just a vertical relationship, but is the horizontal relationship. God came to save us from our sin, which both separates us from God and separates us from one another. That's what sin does. It gets in the crevices and the nooks of relationships and begins to corrode and divide and break apart. And God's salvation is not just our restoration to him. It's actually our restoration to one another. This is what the gospel is teaching for us. And this is one of the reasons the Sermon on the Mount is so focused on loving your enemy and not hating your neighbor and not lusting after another purpose. It's the reason that when Jesus boils down the Torah and the prophets to one line summary, his one line summary is actually horizontal. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For Jesus, you cannot separate out your relationship with God the Father from your relationship with your family, your coworkers, your classmates, your church members or anyone. And the best way to bridge those relationship gaps is to treat others as you would like to be treated. It's an almost universally memorized rule. I still remember in fourth grade at a secular, non-Christian school, quoting this every single morning. Today, I will treat others as I would like to be treated, because there's something valuable in this what we call the Golden Rule. Now, what you may not know is that uh, ethicists have actually set this rule in comparatively, or has set this rule comparatively against another list of rule sets. Uh, What they sometimes refer to as the iron rule, the wooden rule, and the silver rule. So I want to quickly touch on those because I think it helps clarify the golden rule. And then we'll land this whole thing from there. Now, hold this question in your mind because it's the question we started out with. Does this rule prevent chaos while not allowing overload? Because that's the spectrum, right? No rules is chaos. Too many rules is overload. We're looking for something towards the middle. So start with the iron rule. The iron rule goes something like this. Do unto others before they do unto you. It's the most basic primal instinct of of animals. This is the basis for Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest. Eliminate that threat that would seek to eliminate me. I need to go stand against that before it seeks to attack me Historically, this has been kind of the lead philosophical rule of political leadership, especially among tyrannical rulers. So this is Hitler's justification and uh, means of drumming up hatred for Jewish people. Do unto them before they do unto us. But it's also far more personal than that. I mean, the first ethic of humanity noted after the fall, the first major sin is Cain and Abel. And it's Cain's heart that looks at what Abel gives to God and says, that's a threat to my relationship with God. So I'm going to go ahead and do to him before he does to me. And he kills his own brother. And as much as we feel like we've progressed beyond this, I think we still can fall in trap to this mentality. Well, if I don't attack them first, it's only a matter of time before they attack me. Which I would just say that's almost as chaotic as no rules whatsoever. In fact, that is just as chaotic as no rules whatsoever. Because then everything's up for interpretation. So the iron rule does not get us to where God wants us to be. The second rule is what we refer to or what ethicists ethicists refer to as the wooden rule. It goes like this. Do unto others as they do unto you. It often comes with this moniker tit for tat. And that sounds like a bad thing, and it can be, but it could also be a good thing. Hey, I like your jacket. Oh, cool. I like your shoes. Like, you give me a compliment, I give you a compliment. That's how it goes. Just do unto others as they do unto you. But even so, it creates this ping-pong ethics system where everything can be positive until one person does something negative. And then there's a downward spiral from there. Uh, I, I was uh, reminded of this quote from the book Huckleberry Finn. I just thought it's funny. It's from the character Buck. So if you're going to quote Huckleberry Finn, you've got to say it in a southern accent, right? <laughs> well, says Buck, a feud's this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. And then the other brothers on both sides go for one another. And then the cousins chip in. And by and by, everybody's killed off. And there ain't no more feuds. So this is wooden rule mentality. And it's the maturity of children. And yet somehow it still plagues humanity. It doesn't matter what your age is or what your background is. We still have this preconceived idea that if you talk behind my back, then it's okay for me to talk behind your back. And if you cut me off, then I'm going to get in front of you and cut you out. And if you make a passive-aggressive comment, I'm making a passive-aggressive comment back. And is it enough to subside chaos? No, it just leads to more. It creates a breeding ground for more. So the wooden rule doesn't get us there. Third is is the silver rule, and the silver rule is the opposite of the golden rule. It's the adverse of the golden rule. It goes like this. Don't do unto others what you wouldn't have them do unto you. This is Rabbi Hillel saying 50 years before Jesus, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to others. But it wasn't just Rabbi Hillel. Confucius, 500 years before that, when asked, is there one word that would keep us on the path to end our days? Responded, yes, reciprocation. What you do not wish yourself, do not do to others. This rule is light years ahead of what it can be. It's great at preventing conflict and strife and chaos. And at first glance, it might really just feel like semantics. I mean, isn't that really the same thing that Jesus is saying here? But if you take some time and think deeply on it, you'll find there's actually some stuff. Staggering differences between these two rules. There's staggering difference between you not doing something to cause suffering and you doing something to alleviate suffering. There's a story I read about in 1964 in New York City. There's a woman by the name of Catherine uh, Genovese, and she was going home from work. uh, work, And on her way into her apartment, she was attacked and, and stabbed repeatedly by this guy who robbed her and took everything. And, and he ran off and she began to cry out for help and no one came to her side. And finally the guy that stabbed her came back and essentially finished her off. So she would stop crying for help and she and then ran away. And so when police came to do some investigating, they went door to door knocking and they were asking people, they found 38 people confessed to having heard her cry out for help and no one did a thing. And that sounds horrible to us, but do you understand? That's the silver rule at play. I didn't cause that suffering. It's not my business. I'm not the one that has any part of it. So it's not anything. I I did no harm. So I am safe and sound. So the silver rule, while it gives no cause for preemptive attempts to cause harm, it neither gives cause for preemptive attempts to alleviate suffering. So it doesn't get us there. Jesus knows better than to suggest his kingdom will be one of perfection under some mantra of just niceness or do no harm. So Jesus comes in and to the best that we know in all scholarly opinions, he is the first and only to give this version of this rule to come out and say, do unto others. Take preemptive action for the betterment of others. Take preemptive love out into the world. Do things, putting another person's well-being ahead of you. Your own well-being and just hear me out this is radical and I know it's radical because everything inside of me wants to start fighting against it I want to say wait wait a minute what if and start giving all my protests what if I'm preemptively going out and loving this person and they don't deserve it what if I mean they ruined their own life that's not for me to fix for them what that doesn't make sense, Jesus. What, what if they take advantage of me? What if I give these good things to them and they go spend it on something that's not good for them? What, what, what about that, Jesus? There's all these what ifs that we can put at play to which I think, and there's room to talk about it, but just for now, I would simply ask, how did Jesus go about loving you? How did Jesus go about loving us? Jesus took preemptive action to love you, highlighting your well-being above his own by literally giving up himself on a criminal's cross. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, he came, for God loved us in this way, that he sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners. While we didn't deserve it, and while we absolutely could take advantage of it. And if I could just be honest with you, there are undeniably times I've taken advantage of God's good grace and he chooses to give it to me anyways. This is the way God loves us. Never once asking a question about whether or not you deserved it, because the astounding answer is no, none of us deserved it. That's why it's grace. Grace. See, for Jesus, the golden rule is not just a hopeful means by which the world might become a better place. It is the very foundation of his action poured out towards us. It is the very heart of the way he loves us. In the words of Eugene Peterson's message translation, it is asking yourself what you would want people to do for you, then grabbing the initiative and doing it for them. So I'd ask, what's what's your default posture? I think we tend to navigate to one of these two sides where it's kind of no rules, anarchy. I just do whatever feels good for me, and I'm just going to do me. You don't, don't ask questions. And that leads to chaos, and you end up out fishing in a boat with no hook in the water at 5.30 in the morning making Philip fret. Like that's this. Then some of us live over here with just just like rule bound life of this checklist of things we can't do because if we do those and Jesus is coming into both of those things and he's saying, look, it's neither of those. It's this lifestyle I'm inviting you to where you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is what you can live like. See, It's really a great thought experiment. What's the rule of your life? If you could take all the things you believe and boil it down into one rule, what would that rule be? Would it be follow your heart? When I was in fifth grade, I had a teacher uh, that every day um, he was our lunchroom monitor and he would come by our lunch table and say, all right, guys, there's only two rules. Number one, obey all rules. Number two, if you forget the rules, refer back to rule number one. Every day he would say that. But some of us like there's there's one rule, but that's obey all the other rules. And we live in this kind of overloaded, stunlocked life, scared about whether or not God really loves us. And what God's inviting us to is this ground of trusting his grace and then demonstrating it in action to other people. And I would just say, what if this is First Baptist Church of Portales' mantra? What if we are a church that is always looking to preemptively go and do and take actions of love, giving up our own well-being for the sake of the well-being of Fortalis, giving up our own well-being for the sake of that person that may or may not deserve it, but it's what Jesus calls us to. And we trust our Savior more than we trust anything else. What if this was our mantra? As we close out, this is what we remind ourselves in communion. We come to our Savior, who gave up his well-being by bleeding out on a cross, by having his body beaten. So even when we didn't deserve it, we could come and follow him by his grace and his kingdom. That we could absolutely be restored vertically to our Savior, to our Creator, but also that we could be So as we go through this, we're going to give you just a few minutes to, to pray and take some time and think through your heart posture within it. But I would just invite you to consider what's your rule of life, and might it be worth it to just wake up in the morning tomorrow morning and remind yourself today I'm going to do to other people, preemptively, what I would want them to do to me. My portalis is different than it did have. It has to. But this is your chance. Maybe you've never known Jesus' love and you want to come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about it more. But in all of this, let me pray as we seek your love like Jesus.